Good to see you today. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 14 uh, today. As we've kind of already mentioned, we are uh, beginning a new series that I'm calling I Am Jesus in His Own Words. And what we're going to be doing uh, throughout this series, this series is going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. Um, We're going to be looking at the claims of Jesus, the claims that He made about Himself. And so uh, many secular people today believe that Jesus was a good religious teacher, that he obviously is the founder of the Christian religion and that uh, basically that he is on par, he's on the same level with other uh, founders of the other major religions. So, so Jesus is put into a category with Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha, maybe a philosopher like Socrates uh, and the like. And so a lot of secular people view Jesus in this way. And so when I hear that, when I hear that uh, Jesus is put in the same category with, with uh, those other founders, um, I, I immediately know that they have, they have never done any serious consideration of Jesus' teaching. And um, the reason why I know that is because if you look at what Jesus said about himself, if you look at Jesus' teaching, you know that it really... Um, contains claims that he made about himself that puts him in a completely different category than all the other religious leaders. And it's not just his claims, but it is his life, his deeds, and his impact long after his death and resurrection, his impact in human history that really catapults Jesus into a category all by himself. And so this morning, I want us to look at one of the most audacious claims that Jesus ever made. Now, Jesus made a lot of outrageous statements, statements that we hear so much in church, we, you know, we don't even think twice about them, you know, because we've heard them so much. But he made so many outrageous statements, statements like uh, this, that you've got to lose your life in order to find it. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. Or a statement like, the meek will inherit the earth. Or love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other one as well. Now those are some outrageous statements. We, we don't realize, because we've heard them so much, how countercultural those statements really are. But they're nothing compared to the most audacious thing, the most outrageous thing, the most politically incorrect thing that Jesus ever said. And that is contained in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't have to tell you all this, that many secular people really struggle with that statement in particular, and especially they get kind of peeved when they hear one of us Uh, state that very statement. But here's the thing I don't want us to miss. It's a basic observation, and it it really uh, is, is overlooked so many times. What most people miss is this. Jesus is the one who said it about himself. We didn't make the claim about Jesus that he is the way and the truth and the life. We're simply repeating the claim that Jesus made about himself. And I think it's obvious that the claim itself really excludes the possibility of Jesus just being a a good teacher. Because if he's the way and the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through him, he can't be just a good teacher. He's more than that. 
And if he's not the way and the truth and the life, then he can't be just a good teacher because a good teacher wouldn't go around saying that. You guys follow me on that? That's a very common, uh, well-known argument, but it, but it still stands. And so what we're going to be looking at today is what Jesus said about himself. And so what I want to do is read the entire passage where he said this. Uh, because I think it even brings more weight to what he says, more clarity to what he says. Jesus will be meeting, he's meeting with his disciples. He is a few hours from death. He knows this, and he is trying to prepare them as best that he can. And that's kind of where we pick up the story in John chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And, and I want to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect and reverence that God himself has revealed his word to us Uh, in the form of scripture. Notice what Jesus says. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come in and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. All scripture is God-breathed and useful in correcting, reproving, teaching, and training in righteousness. You may be seated. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Now let me just ask you, uh, as we kind of think about this this morning, you know, as you think about all the commands in Scripture, which one do you think is the hardest command to obey? You know, as you kind of think about it. Think about all the commands that God has revealed to us in His Word. Which one do you think is the hardest one to obey? Now it could be it could simply be the love your neighbor as yourself. That can be really hard, especially when you don't like your neighbor. That can be a challenging one. I, I think the command do not steal can be a hard one. Uh, the command do not lie can be really hard, especially if you're in a tight spot and you need to tell a fib to kind of get your, your way out of that tight spot. Uh, certainly do not lust is, is one, in our, uh, especially in our sensual kind of promiscuous society where um, really, sexuality is just worshipped um, everywhere we go in our culture. That can be a very difficult one, obviously. Uh, there's also the command in Philippians 2 that says, do not complain. And um, some of you have that spiritual gift, and, uh, and you're like, I didn't know that was a sin. I didn't know there was a command on that. Yeah, there, there really was. And so uh, those are difficult ones. There's no question about that. No question about that. But I want to make the case that the most difficult command in all of Scripture to obey is found in John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I mean, by far, that's the most difficult one, especially where we are right now through all that we've been through over the last year. Uh, we live in anxious times, don't we? 
We, 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 we live in the age of anxiety. There's a lot of trouble in, in our world today. Uh, there is a, a lot of difficulty, a lot of issues uh, that we're facing. And so this command, don't let your hearts be troubled, that's a tough one. Because I think, I mean, if we could be, just be honest with, you know, with each other today, I think a lot of us walk into the room today with troubled hearts. Because we've, we're facing something financial, we're, say, we're facing something physical, we're facing some kind of relational difficulty, some kind of family difficulty, wh- whatever. The, we, we come with troubled hearts. And uh, it's part of life that has lived in a fallen world. And uh, if that's you today, I, I, I want to ask you, open your heart and open your mind to Jesus' words. Do not let your heart be troubled. You see, the reality is this. What Jesus is going to show us is he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of it. That in the end, we have no reason to be troubled, right? Because he's worthy of our trust. And when you look at who he is and when you look at what he's done, you find that he proves himself faithful over and over and over again. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. And I think this is really the point of the passage today. I want to challenge you to do two things today, just very simply I want to challenge you to trust Jesus in your present. Just trust Jesus right where you are. And then secondly, I want, you, I want to challenge you to trust Jesus for your eternal future. All right, let's look, at, let's, look at, let's look at what I mean by this. Let's talk about Jesus, trusting Jesus for the present. Go back and look at verse 1 and notice, notice how Jesus words this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I want you to see the direct line that Jesus draws between a troubled, free heart and faith. That the key to living a, you know, having a troubled, free heart, living above the circumstances and the problems in our life, the key is faith. That's what Jesus is saying. The key is the choice to trust God, the, the choice to believe in God, even when circumstances kind of contradict our belief. And so he calls us to faith. He, he, he's calling us to believe and to trust in him. And we're going to believe and trust in something. And what Jesus is saying is, let it be in me. Now let's just say for kicks that you have financial difficulties. You're facing some financial struggles and, uh, and then someone comes up to you, somebody that you don't know, and they basically say, I want you to trust me with your finances. And if you'll trust me with your finances, I will double your assets and I will get you out of debt. Just give me a year. Now, I think you would be intrigued by that proposition, would you not? That would be interesting. You would at least kind of ponder that for a while. Even if you don't know the person, you would, you would at least ponder that. And you, and you would probably take steps to investigate that person. You would probably take some steps to consider their claims, what they're saying, and to consider their credentials, what they've done in the past. And that will factor in your decision whether to engage with them or not. Because you know that people will make outrageous claims all the time and they never come through. Now, I I heard Pastor Lee Strobel tell the story about a, a lady from history. Her name was Jemima Wilkinson. And Jemima Wilkinson was born in Rhode Island in 1752. And she was convinced that she was the daughter of God. Like capital D daughter. You guys tracking with me on that? She believed, she told her followers that she was the only way to the Father. 
Now, she had a little bit of a following. She convinced about 200 people of this. And so one day, as history tells us, she, she was out walking with her followers kind of right behind her, and they came across a lake. And she came up to the shore, and she turned around to her followers, and she said, I'm going to walk across that lake, uh, right across that lake, right on top of the water. And she asked all 200 people that were there that day, how many of you believe that I can walk across this lake on top of the water? And they all said, we believe, we believe, do it, do it, do it. So she turned and started to do it. And then all of a sudden she stopped. And she said, you know what? After thinking about it, you guys already believe I can do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to walk around on dry land. Now, needless to say, she lost some followers that day. There were some people that started getting a little skeptical of Jemima Wilkinson on that day. But her but her movement really took a blow in 1820 when she was on her deathbed because she, she had made the proclamation that she would die, but on the third day be raised from the dead. So she told her followers, be sure not to bury me because I'm going to be raised three days afterward. Well, the first day had come and gone. Uh, the second day had come and gone. <laughs> and the third day had come and gone. And all of her followers had come and gone on the fourth day um, because she couldn't back up her claims. Now, here's the question that I have, and, and maybe this is where you are today. But how do we know Jesus was really telling the truth? How do we know he wasn't a quack like Jemima Wilkinson, right? You know, what if Jesus was just like her? I mean, how do we really know? How do we really know that his you know, followers didn't just make this up or he was just deluded in some way? Well, here's the answer, church. Jesus backed up his claims with credentials that established his credibility. He backed up what he said, unlike Jemima Wilkinson. And I just want to share with you four or five credentials that I think show us and demonstrate to us that Jesus is worthy of our trust in the present, that he is worthy of our trust. Here's the first one. I think we can trust Jesus because he fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. You know, I've talked about this in the past, but there were about 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. These prophecies contained in the Old Testament were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So prophecies like the place of his birth, like his virgin birth, like that he would enter Jerusalem triumphantly, that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people, that the Messiah would be betrayed by one of his followers, that the Messiah would be tortured and killed for our transgressions. And it goes on and on and on. And so people have done mathematical studies of the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled, and they've looked at the odds of just an ordinary human being pulling this off and their conclusion was it's not only unlikely it's it's mathematically impossible for any human in history to fulfill them and so that's why i believe we can trust jesus claim and there's a second credential that jesus has for why we can trust him and that's this because of his unprecedented character there's something different about his character. I think when you you look at Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, you get a snapshot of who Jesus is. You begin to understand his character. And his character is unprecedented. His character is unlike anything we've seen throughout human history. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like us, and yet was without sin. Now, this is hard for us to even get our minds around. 
But I want you to think about this, church. As a little boy, Jesus never sassed his mom. Did you know that? Not one time. As a teenager, he never lied to his dad about where he was. Never. What we see in Jesus is Jesus perfectly fulfilling the law from birth all the way to his death. Perfectly. Loving his enemies, praying for those who persecuted them, being respectful of his parents, honoring his mom and dad, loving his brothers and sisters. I could go on and on and on in this. And so we even see that in a hostile courtroom, Pontius Pilate, the judge, says about Jesus, I find no fault with him. I can find nothing wrong with him. And so there's something about his unprecedented character. He's just in a different category than anyone else in human history. But there's a third credential about Jesus. And that is the miracles that he performed. And so the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain the miracles that Jesus did. And what's fascinating to me about the miracles that he performed and the power of God is he doesn't do this in a dark room in front of one or two people. He's not using smoke and mirrors, you know. He's not using curtains and an assistant to help him out. He's doing them in broad daylight, and he's doing them in front of his enemies who are skeptics and cynics, who are looking for every possible reason to discredit him, but they can't. They never, they never said a word about him working miracles. Their problem, the religious leader's problem with Jesus was he was performing miracles on the Sabbath day. That's all they had on him. That's mind-boggling to me. And as a matter of fact, if you look in books of ancient history of people who were opponents of Jesus, you know, ancient Jewish writings and even the Quran of Islam, both admit that Jesus did the miraculous. Isn't that amazing? They both admit that Jesus did the, the miraculous. So his ability to work miracles, I believe, further validates his claims of who he was. But there's still another reason, and that's, that's because of his sacrificial death. I think we can trust Jesus because of his sacrificial death. Jesus actually died on a Roman cross. He really did. It's a historical fact. And so the religious leaders of the day schemed to put him to death, and Jesus permitted the scheme to take place, saying, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus is not a victim of injustice. He, he died a, as a deliberate substitute for our sin. And so the Bible says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you just kind of think about this, if you just imagine being three or four months back, you know, uh, in the rears on your, on your mortgage payment, and then all of a sudden, you know, the bank's calling you and, you know, collectors are showing up at your door and then all of a sudden one shows up on the door and doesn't go away and you answer the door and you're kind of just sweating bullets because you've not been paying your mortgage for several months and you know what's about to happen. You're going to be helpless, you're going to be homeless, you're going to be evicted and then a phone call comes to the collector who's collecting it and he's, he's having this conversation and then all of a sudden the conversation is stopped. He gets off the phone and looks at you and says, you know what? You, uh, I've got really good news for you today. A wealthy relative has called and made all of your past payments. And not only that, has paid off your mortgage completely. Here's the deed of your house. You may have a great day. Now, 
how would you feel after that exchange? You would feel elated and grateful, would you not? Can I get an amen to that? Well, here's the deal, church. We had a huge debt that we couldn't pay. A sin debt that we couldn't pay. We were going to be evicted from God's house. But God's son picked up the mortgage payment and put it on his back and paid the entire debt for us. And the Bible says it like this, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so he merits your total trust because he paid a debt that you couldn't pay, that we couldn't pay. Here's the last reason why I believe Jesus is worthy of our trust, really just because of his resurrection. His resurrection. We're going to be celebrating his resurrection in just a few weeks. And so I believe his resurrection is um, a spectacular, the most spectacular demonstration of his deity. That Jesus fulfilled his own prophecy saying that I'm going to die and on the third day I'll be raised. And they put him in a tomb and he walked out of that tomb. And not only did he walk out of the tomb, but he appeared to well over 500 eyewitnesses who saw him. And so who else but the Son of God could be buried in the earth for three days and then establish that he had returned to life? You see, that's just the reality. That is just who Jesus is. And some people will push back and say, well, somebody just kind of stole his body and just kind of made up the whole thing. Let me tell you, the religious leaders had the authority and the power to pull his body out if it was, you know, if it was stolen or or hidden, or just lost, or whatever, they would have established that in a minute to stop this movement, but they couldn't because so many people were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. You see, all of that to say that Christianity is not just a philosophy, church. It is a reality. It is reality. And we need to stop living a deception, living as if Jesus is just another good religious teacher we need to see him for who he really is, our Lord and our King. No other person, no other person in human history has done what Jesus has done, and no other human history has impacted the world like Jesus has. He is worthy of your trust. What is it that you need to trust him for today? What is it? Church, he is big enough to handle it. He really is. So trust him in the present but I would also challenge you to trust him for your eternal future. If God can deal with our past through his son and our present, then he can take care of the future. He really can. And we see this in John chapter 14. He says this in verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that, you, that where I am, you may be as well. Now, he is talking about when he's, he, he's, he's literally talking about heaven. And so there are several metaphors for heaven in scripture. So there's a number of metaphors that we see. So there's our blessed hope. There's the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. There's the marriage feast. There's certainly the kingdom of God as a metaphor. My favorite metaphor that scripture uses to communicate about heaven is my father's house. I love that. That's how Jesus describes heaven, my father's house. What he is saying to us is there, there is a place in heaven for you. And that place is your home. That is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate, that heaven is our home. Now, 
if you had grown up in a good home, you know, where you had a, a healthy family, a loving family, you know, and um, if you had grown up in that, and, and let's just say that after the service today, somebody said, hey, we're going to go over to dad's house together, and we're going to eat lunch. What kind of connotation would you have of that if you heard that? Well, you would have a positive connotation. You would have, you know, you would have a picture of security and affection and acceptance and love and laughter and fellowship and, and even, you know, basketball. You know what I mean? You, you would have all of those things. And so what Jesus is trying to conjure up in our minds by using this metaphor is the very same thing. And I realize that some of you grew up in dysfunctional homes and you didn't have that. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to you is this, that maybe you didn't have that growing up, but there's going to be a day by grace through faith, you will experience it to the nth degree. That's what he's saying. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Now I love this whole phrase, many rooms, because uh, it really just communicates that there's a room with your name on it. Like a, a room just for you. There's a place in heaven for you just with your name on it, designed completely and perfectly for you. Now, we think of a room, but he's using it as a metaphor, right? And, and what he's talking about is heaven is made for you personally, not in the abstract, not generally, but very specifically. That's what he's talking about, very personally. And I love the fact that he says there are many rooms, and this reminds us there are going to be a lot of interesting and fascinating people in heaven. There's going to be a lot of diversity in heaven. Let me show you this from Revelation 7, 9. So the Apostle John gets a vision of heaven. He actually gets to see it, and this is, this is what he saw. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Now, when the Bible uses the word great multitude, you know what that means? There were a lot of people there. That's what it means. That no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You guys catching how multicultural that is? You get the idea that God loves diversity, right? Because that's what he's describing. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. He's talking about unity of races. He's talking about unity of nations. He's talking about unity of tribes and unity of peoples and unity of languages. Have you ever known any of, you know, any of that to be united here on earth in any way? Not so much, but God is going to do it. And he does it through the blood of his son. So there's a number that no one could even, uh, could even number. Now, God obviously loves variety but he also loves new and you get that in revelation 21 where jesus says behold i'm making all things new and so what god is going to do is he's going to take heaven and he's going to take earth and he's going to combine it and he's going to renovate it he's going to make it brand spanking new and it's going to be called the new heaven and the new earth that's where our that's where our home is going to be and see, what Adam and Eve sinned, it brought a curse on the earth. Their choice to sin and rebel against God brought, brought a curse. And so creation became 
sin cursed. It became cursed, which is why there's death and disease and disaster, why the Pacers can never make the NBA finals. It's, it's, all, it's all of that is because we're in a sin cursed world. And so what he's going to do is he's going to lift the curse. And Jesus will make all of this new and there'll be no more death, no more sickness, no more poverty, no more racism, um, no more broken relationships, no more misunderstandings, no more sin, no more devil, praise God. Can you believe that? What will heaven be like? I think we'll eat there. I really do. I think we'll party I think we're going to sit around and tell stories. I think we're going to recognize each other and we're going to spend eternity getting to know each other and all the other people. I really do. I think we're going to play sports. I think we're going to work. We're going to rest. We're going to worship. I think we're going to rule with him. Not sure what that means, but we're going to reign and rule with him. Uh, I think we're going to continue to grow in knowledge. I think there's going to be all kinds of different rooms in heaven. There's going to be one room where we go in and worship. There's going to be another room where we learn history. We, we can actually go back in time and kind of walk through events in history like, you know, the, the crossing of the Red Sea and Jesus walking on the water. I mean, I, I think we're going to experience all of that. I think there's going to be a Q&A room. You know what I mean? Like we're going to go into a room and we're going to be able to ask questions, right? It's going to be a classroom where we're going to learn and keep growing even as we have already been made perfect, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. I think we're going to experience the love of God like never before. Do you know the, the Bible, the, the book of Revelation talks about that God is going to give you a new name in heaven. Did you know that? And it's going to be a name just between you and God. No one else is going to know it. And it's fascinating when you just kind of consider that because, you know, when someone knows your name, when somebody remembers your name, what does it do for you? It's, it's like, a, it's so affirming, right? They know me, they know my name, and it's just, it's just affirming and validating when somebody knows your name. And God is going to whisper a new name to you, which will be an expression of his personal love for you and no one else. And he's so big, he can do it. He can do it. You see, what Jesus is saying here is this, that he made a place for you. He made a place for you. And uh, he's going to tell us he's the way to the place. He's the highway to it. C.S. Lewis says it so beautifully this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, he says, he makes each soul unique. If he had no use for all these differences, I don't see why he should have created more souls than one. Be sure that the ins and outs of your individuality are no mystery to him, and one day they will no longer be a mystery to you. The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if, it, if you had never seen a key, and the key itself a strange thing if you'd never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. For it is not humanity in the abstract that is to be saved, but you, you the individual reader, John Stubbs or Janet Smith, blessed and fortunate creature, your eyes shall behold him and not another's. All that you are, sins apart, is destined, if you will let God have his good way, to utter satisfaction. The Brocken Spectre looked to every man like, like his first love because she was a cheat. But God will look to every soul like it's his, 
like its first love because he is its first love. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you are made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. The Bible says, eyes haven't seen and ears haven't heard and hearts haven't even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so you can trust him. This is what he's preparing for you. But you gotta take that step and trust him. You see, the reality of what Jesus is saying is this, is he's saying, I'm the way. I'm the path. I'm the way that you get there. Not, not through morality, not through good works, not even through church attendance, not through philosophy, not through education, not through trying hard and doing more and being better, not even through that. But what Jesus is gonna say, it's through me. Look at what he says in verse three. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas objects. He says, he said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying here is this. If you know me, you know the way because I am the way. The way is a person. The way is the person of Jesus. And so Jesus is trying to help these guys to see that there is a way through death and that way is the person of Christ. So he's challenging them. He's calling them, follow me, trust in me, believe in me. Now, where did, where did Jesus go? What did he do? Well, he went to the cross and he died for our sins. The sins, our sins were laid upon him and, and then the father turned his back on his son for the first time in all of eternity. Because the Father's holiness can't dwell with our sinfulness. And so Jesus experienced the turning away of the Father. And then he, then he died, forsaken, on the cross. So then they took his body down. They put it in a tomb. And it was in that, in that tomb for three days. But on the third day, he comes back to life. And he's got nail prints, got nails, nail holes in his, in his hands and in his feet. And he's overcome death. And he's overcome sin. And Jesus says, if you'll follow me, you'll make it through death to life too. You see, there is life on the other side of death. Now, the reason why that is so interesting is because no other founder of any other religion has made a claim like that one. That's a big one. You see, Moses didn't say it. Muhammad didn't say it. Buddha didn't say it. Socrates didn't say it. Joseph Smith didn't say it. Because none of them came back from the grave, but Jesus said it because he came back on that resurrection, on that resurrection day. So he's saying, I am the way, and your trust in me will get you there. So how do you do this? Well, very simply, how do you get to heaven? It's very simple. Just simple as A, B, and C. Letter A stands, you just admit that you've sinned. And you have separated yourself from God. 
You just admit that. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and we've, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the problem is, is what we think is we think, okay, uh, I, I'm going to get there by just being a good person. And so we instinctively, it's just part of our human nature to start comparing ourselves kind of with other people and just kind of grading our, well, I'm better than this person and I'm better than that person. Surely, surely I can get into heaven because I'm better than all of them or I'm better than all of those folks. And so we immediately start comparing ourselves to other people people. And I would suggest that's the wrong comparison. I would suggest to you that we need to compare ourselves to the Ten Commandments. That we need to evaluate ourselves in light of the Ten Commandments. That we need to not only compare ourselves to the Ten Commandments, but we need to evaluate ourselves in light of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' explanation of the Ten Commandments. And then we need to see how we're measuring up there. That's a more accurate comparison. And the Bible says if we've broken one law, we've broken all of them. So now it's getting a little bit hairy, isn't it? And there's just this human nature in me and in you to want to cover our sin, to want to get defensive, to want to kind of cut ourselves some slack, but be harder on other people. We, like, we have this thing where we just are able to excuse our own sin in our life and think that we're better than we are. And to immediately trust in our goodness. Well, God surely has to let me in because of how good I am. And see, the, the problem with that is this. It's not about being good. It's about being perfect. And there's only one who's been perfect. And his name is Jesus. So it starts with just being sober-minded about our own sinfulness. And admitting that I have taken steps to separate myself from God. But then that leads us to be, to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Let me show you John 3.16. Beautiful summary of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, the key to not perishing is believing in Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what opens the door to eternal life. Now, it's not just a it's not just believing in Jesus kind of intellectually, just mentally. It is really humbly trusting in him. Like like you trust in the chair that you're sitting in. It is it is swallowing your pride and not trusting yourself anymore, but trusting in the person of Jesus. Because you see Ephesians 2 tells us for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, but it's the gift of God. You see, it's, it's just a gift that you receive. So you believe that Jesus died for you. And then see, you commit your life to following him. You commit your life to following him. You commit to follow him as Lord. And there's two expressions of this, this kind of commitment of following him. You know, the, the first one is just repentance. And repentance is a kind of a change of direction in your life. It's, it means that you were, you know, you were going one direction, but you, you do a 180 degree direction turn away from how you've been living. You, you know, you used to lie to your parents, but I'm no longer going to lie to my parents. Why? Because Jesus died and rose for me. Because he's got a place for me in heaven. I, I used to steal, but I'm not going to steal anymore. I, 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 used to, I used to do things and say things that I, you know, that I used to do, but I don't do them anymore. Why? Because I repented. I turned away from that because Jesus died for that. That's repentance. That's committing your life to following him. 
But there's another expression of this commitment, and this commitment is baptism. And baptism is basically where we go public and we say to whoever will listen, I'm following Jesus. I'm following him. And see, I think a lot of us just think, oh, I just prayed a prayer. That's good. I'm fine. That's all I need to do. No, that's not. Because if you want Jesus to acknowledge you before the Father, you need to acknowledge Jesus before everyone else. And that's what baptism really is. And so we do it when we get married, right? We stand in front of a group of people and we pledge our love and loyalty so that everybody who will come and listen will see it happen right in front of us. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And so I just want to ask you, have you taken that step? This is not about just going to church or praying a prayer. It's about admitting, believing, and committing. And, and once by grace through faith, you've taken that step, then all of a sudden you'll find, man, my heart is released from all of these troubles. I'm free now to lead a trouble-free life because I know that Jesus has got me. He's worthy of my trust. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in, in your presence today, we, we just acknowledge how amazing your son Jesus is, that he truly is the way and the truth and the life. And so God, I thank you. We, we don't understand all the ins and outs, but we understand enough to know that Jesus was unlike any other person who ever lived He lived a sinless life. He he died as a substitute for us. And he rose on the third day. And the truth is, we just don't know anybody else like that. But Father, I thank you that through your grace and through your mercy, we can know Jesus. We can know you. And so I just pray today that we would be clear about this, our salvation in you. So God, would you just work? Would you work in in these moments? We ask that the Spirit would come and just move us to yourself. Because this is what life is all about. And Heavenly Father, we just know too that there are many here with troubled hearts. God, help us to be reminded you're worthy of our faith. You're worthy of our trust. You've got us. We're good in you. So God, just fill us with faith for that. I want to just give you an opportunity. I want to ask you to just keep your eyes closed and your head bowed. I just want to give you an opportunity to respond today. If you want to cross the line of faith and say, today I, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to, I want to be a Christian. I haven't been, but I want to be. Would you just 
pray this prayer right after me. You can do it just silently to yourself. There's nothing special about this prayer. It's just, it's just a cry for help, a cry for grace. So just, just in your heart, just pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my life. I admit that I've sinned and I've separated myself from you. But I believe that Jesus died for me in my place so that I could be forgiven, so that I could walk a new life. So God, put your spirit in me that I would follow you and walk in repentance, walk in faith, and tell others about you. We thank you and praise you. And all of God's people said, amen and amen.